What the Bible says about your parents' words is that they are sources of wisdom. And two things we know are true. They've lived more life than you have, yeah. necessarily. And they love you. They probably care for you more than they care for anyone else in the world. And so between the experience they have and their love for you, the words that they have for you are, the Bible tells us, a blessing. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. I hope you had a chance to catch part one of this two-part conversation with Dr. Bill Davis on how to care for our aging loved ones. If you haven't, take the time now to listen to both episodes. Last week, we discussed the idea of honoring your parents in their older years. This week, we will get into more specific questions of how to care for your aging parents or loved ones practically. Dr. Bill Davis is a professor of philosophy at Covenant College, an adjunct professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, and an elder in the Presbyterian Church. He has spent over two decades on hospital ethics committees, confronting the profound challenges of -of end-of-life care decisions. He brings a wealth of knowledge, compassion, and biblical insight into the topic, and he captured this wisdom in his book, Departing in Peace. Join us now as we continue this candid conversation. As you mentioned, the history of healthcare now has modernized, and there's now people's life expectancy is longer. We're seeing a huge increase now as the older edge of the boomer generation. It's going to be a considerable amount of money in the healthcare system and time. And this will affect more and more people. And we're seeing that here at our church. It's very prevalent. So we've asked some people to um, submit some questions. And um, here's, here's some of the ones we're getting. Is there anything you can do to help a parent who is struggling with depression from loss and just wants to keep to themselves and not be around family. Mm. Uh, So this is really sad Mm. um, and difficult, Mm. but also not unusual. Yeah. Uh, All of us go through a struggle when we experience loss. Of course. Even at the height of your physical and mental health, it's a blow and it, it makes you low, makes it hard to focus. Um, so even at the zenith of your powers, a loss is debilitating, Mm. but imagine then you're physically weaker, right? As you get older, processing gets more difficult, Mm. holding things together gets more difficult. Mm. And when you suffer a loss, then with limited resources, it does make sense to withdraw and say, I do not want to fall apart in front of other people. Yeah. And so the first thing to say is you want to be a source of encouragement and not necessarily joy, but you want to add uplift to their life. Hmm. 
adding to them the uh, a sense that they should feel bad about not being with other people doesn't help them. No. And so you can be frustrated that because you think that you would be better off if you spent more time with other people. Right. Probably true for you as a younger person where you would have the energy to turn other people's delight in things into your own delight in things. That's much harder to do when you're older. Yeah. And so you, you certainly wouldn't want to say what's wrong with you, mom. <laughs> you know that it would help to be with other people. Don't you remember what you were like? Well, mm. one, probably they do. <laughs> and they do know that at some level that their younger self could have done it. Yeah. Now, a lot depends upon what kind of depression this yeah. is. And I don't do any of those diagnoses. If it was clinical depression, either because they they have a history and then the way that older, mild depression issue is manifesting itself now is withdraw in an unhealthy way. Yeah. That's not something that most of us can diagnose. Right. And it's not something that can be diagnosed by someone who only hears about it from you, the child, yeah, the person who might have an issue that needs to be dealt with, with therapy or some kind of psychiatric help that can only be done by them talking to a professional. Yeah. And unless your parents decide they need to talk to someone, you're not going to trick them into it. Right. And you shouldn't try. That's what you do with a child. Yeah. It is very difficult to watch your parents go through a stretch mm. where if they were your child or even your friend, you would know how to confront them yeah. with what you're confident are probably not the best choices. Yeah. But when it's your parents, I don't think that's your role. And I think that it would only make things harder for them because mm. then they know, oh, I'm disappointing my children. Mm. Another reason to, to trust the Holy Spirit and the church. You pray mm. that somebody comes into their life and a friend reaches out to them. Now you can talk to one of their friends yeah. and say, can you help me? Yeah. It is a very difficult place to be because yeah. it hurts to watch your parents hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there are limits, I think on what a child can do productively. So all the energy that you would have spent on telling them how they could make better choices, you would spend in prayer. Hmm. Not complaining about them to other people, yeah, but talking with your savior about them. Mm. And then you might ask them, is it all right if I talk to your friend about how you're spending your time? Mm. And your parents might, your mom might say like, no, I'd rather you just stayed out of this. Yeah. And then you don't, right. <laughs> you don't go behind their back. You pray for them. Mm. Uh, and try to be around when they do want to talk, mm. pray for guidance. I think that's what they would want. I think yeah. they would want you not to take over. Right. Unless there was a clinical problem. And then you might just say, um, I don't know how to deal with clinical depression. If that's what you're dealing with, I'm not the one who can yeah. help, but there are people who can, would you be willing to talk to someone? Yeah. I think it helps think and talk through it. And I think that's helpful advice. We've kind of covered this one already, but how do you honor your parents while helping them stay safe? The best thing to do 
is to talk to them about safety before they are cognitively impaired. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and say, how do you want me to handle this? So let's take the example of driving a car. Right. I'm just telling my children, when you think that I would be a threat to other people on the road, pedestrians, other people in cars, um, yeah. I want you to come to me and say, uh, you told us to take the keys away when you weren't safe to drive. And we've talked about it and we've agreed. This is not a punishment. We're doing what you wanted us to do. Right. So that'd be great. So my, yeah. my children know that they've got my permission. In fact, they're carrying out my wishes. Right. Yeah. By taking away the keys. But suppose you've never had that conversation and your parents are now unsafe on the road. I was listening to a podcast about this. And in Arizona, you can just call uh, a state agency and they will show up at your house and say, we want to give driving tests to everyone with a license. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so that's, it's that's right. right. I mean, a welfare it's, check. Yeah. Uh, but you did call the authorities on your parents at that point. And I'm pretty sure that's not what your parents would have wanted you to do. But at, at some point, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to approach them. If you've never had the conversation, you have to go to them and say, um, I know that this is awkward. Um, I'm your child and your job is to correct me, not the other way around. Yeah. But we're worried. Yeah. And like all of you, all the children together <laughs> yeah. have this little intervention. And then you're treating them like a friend. You yeah. would do that with a friend. You'd have an intervention with a friend. Um, I think you're still honoring them because you're treating their feelings and their autonomy as something worthy. You're treating them as worthy of consideration the way you would with a friend. Yeah. You're still their advocate. You're not advocating for all the people who might get hurt on the road. <laughs> you're advocating for them because you know how much grief yeah. it will cause. If right. They and and you that. know that their desire would never be to maliciously hurt someone. Right. And so right. and you know, it's, it certainly... is very difficult to give up uh, the car. You know, well, you remember getting your driver's sure, license. Yeah. And what that it, meant about yeah. your identity and about your and, place in society. Yeah, right. A hundred percent. And giving it up is to revert to a kind of dependence. Yeah. That like absolutely everything about American society says is the most valuable thing of all. Right. And that is the power to choose. So with regards to driving a car, which is one of the first places that you run into a safety issue, mm. but then even after they're not driving, there are staircases that they, you know, just as, how old's your youngest? Well, we're expecting number three in October, so. Okay. You have one that's <laughs> negative three months old. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but there's a period where stairs are a challenge. You know, right, and we block and them a, off. Yep. You, yeah, you put a gate, and you might put a gate. It's very difficult to make a gate that your parents can't – your parents right. can't With beat. Height. Yeah, sure. Uh, because they're tall enough to reach over and things like right. that. But you, you can take steps. But I think you don't have a conversation with your two-year-old about why you're putting up the gate. But you – do try to have a conversation. You try to have a conversation saying we're doing this because we really don't want to see you get hurt. Yeah. And it is going to limit your movement 
and we're sorry about the limitations, but we want to make sure that you're safe. I think you have, an, a, even with someone whose ability to keep up with the conversation, and sometimes along with cognitive diminishment comes irascibility. You're more likely to get angry. Part of the anger is realizing that you're not keeping up with yeah. the conversation. So you're frustrated, and then you take that frustration out on the person who's talking to you. Yeah. Perfect segue into our next question, actually. How do we honor our parents when they're wrestling with their own emotions and often lash out at their children who are just trying to help? First, at least in your heart and depending on your relationship, maybe out loud is you forgive them. Yeah. Because Jesus forgave you when you'd done nothing. Right. Hadn't asked for it. And so your parents don't have to earn your patience Mm. or forgiveness. Mm. Jesus earned it. So, and this is going to be true for everybody, but certainly with your parents, there's um, your first impulse is not to return malice with malice. Yes. Uh, Let's suppose that they're perfectly in command of their thinking and they worked out a particularly awful thing to say to you. This is almost never true. But even in the case where this was the hateful thing they said was the result of studying you to find out how to push your buttons, your response should be forgiveness and mildness. Mm. Because you should do that with everybody because Jesus forgave you, but your parents deserve it because they kept you safe and changed your diaper. Now, if they're physically abusing you, you can defend yourself. But if they're verbally abusing you, you do not need to defend yourself Hmm. by returning abuse for abuse. You can protect yourself by getting out of the circumstance. Yeah. Not in a way that makes them unsafe, right? So you're not going to, you know, if they abuse you as you're walking them across the street, you don't (laughs) walk away, leave them and dart, you know, get as far away as you can, as fast as you can. No, you keep them safe. But in a way that's consistent with keeping them safe, you can protect yourself. Mm. And you can say that hurt. I think I'm going to need to be somewhere else for a while. Mm. I'll be back and then leave as long as they're going to be safe. I think you can do that. Not in a, I'm going to punish you for mistreating me. And you don't say, if you're going to talk to me like that, you're never going to see me again. You don't say things like that. That's returning abuse for abuse. Yeah. Uh, But you can withdraw from a circumstance in which you are in danger of sinning. You are fleeing from temptation, but always with, I will be back because it can't be, I'm going to punish you by withdrawing my affection. Right. And leaving you to wonder whether I'll ever return. You can say, I'll be back in 10 minutes. Yeah. That's kind of a manipulation thing, right? Right. You just say, I'll be back. And then it can be longer the next time. (laughs) (laughs) Like the next time it happens, I'll be back in 15 minutes. Now, one of the challenges in all of this is that as their cognitive powers diminish, their ability to remember a pattern like that. Oh, first it was five minutes. Now it's 10 minutes. Yeah, it's gone. This is escalating. Well, they're losing the ability to remember that pattern. Whereas with children, you would. Like you'd even reinforce that memory is on your side when you're developing a relationship with your children. Memory's not on your side when you're having a relationship with your parents as they become less able to think clearly. 
And so you can't use a memory of what happened yes. as, uh, as a signaling system or any kind of consequence with rewards and disincentives like that. Um, yeah. but I don't think you have to stay and just take it. You're right. If they're able to dish out abuse, they're able to understand that hurt. I'm going to need to go somewhere else for 10 minutes. I'll be back. They can understand that if they can dish out abuse. Now, their ability to understand that is not going to, could be really low. Um, I have uh, more than one friend who visits their parents in the assisted living facility. And their parents are extremely nice to everyone <laughs> except their children. Children, yeah. <laughs> and so no one believes them when they say, I'm not sure I'm going to come tomorrow. So they say this to the staff as they're leaving. I'm not sure I'm going to be here tomorrow. I don't know that I would handle it well if I had to go through another 45 minutes of that. And the staff say, this is the sweetest person yeah, what ever. Are you talking? He, you um, must be sensitive or something. How could you be so hard-hearted? Yeah. But the only people in the world that they're in their diminished state, they remember enough of the relationship that they let fly with hurtful words. I don't think you have to keep going back into that without comment, but you can't punish them. You're never going to be punishing your parents and you're not mm. going to teach them about the consequences of bad behavior through yeah. pain, yeah. psychic pain, physical pain. No, I'm not sure what you do to help your son realize that's dumb and dangerous, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it might involve things worth avoiding. Yes, right. In some way consistent with the law. But you use their memory of discomfort as part of how they learn how the world works. Mm. You can't do that with your parents. Yeah. Because you're not disciplining your parents. You're always advocating for their good, which is going to be about encouragement. This is why on the side of praising what's good and that's fine but you're, you're not going to discipline them. Yeah. They're your parents. This one kind of comes from a slightly different angle. How can a child deal with the guilt they feel mm -hmm. that they aren't honoring their parent or parents or doing enough to help their parents? Right. <sighs> Let me divide this question. Good. <laughs> um, let's start with, you are, in fact, guilty. You have been selfish. There have been opportunities to be an encouragement, to, to learn about what your parents' life is like, and to praise what is praiseworthy. And you have. You've neglected them. Not physically, but you've withdrawn the light of your countenance mm. from them. So, in fact, you are guilty of something. And when you feel guilty because you're guilty, the thing to do is to repent, which yeah. is not just sorrowing, but it's turning, turning yeah. away from the sinful pattern. And so if you've developed a series of habits of depriving your parents of your affection, affection doesn't have to come in the form of money, but probably time. Right. So you've yeah. deprived your parents. Yeah. And if you, in fact, feel guilty because 
you've been guilty, you should repent. Hmm. And as you know, from almost all repentance, you know, your own practice of repentance, doing it privately and not enlisting the help of an accountability partner is setting yourself up for repeating it. Yeah. So if you become aware that you have been shorting your parents, like you, you could just say, is this how I would want my children to treat me Yeah. 30 years from now? Right. Exactly. And if the answer is no, then you want to change the patterns, change the pattern. And unless someone, your spouse, um, a close friend who could keep up with you yeah. and say, so uh, when was the last time you talked to your mom? <laughs> and and yeah, then you, that's uh, good. And somebody who you'll tell the truth. Oh. Well, and, and as you've already given an example, it's a great way that the church can serve yeah. the body. Right. And uh, I wouldn't do it without somebody asking for you to do it. But if someone does say, will you? <laughs> I have enlisted you? you in this task. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to confront people after you've been asked to help in that way. But So let's suppose that you are guilty. That's pretty clear what you should do if you are guilty. Um, what if you know you're not guilty, but you still feel guilty? Mm. Then, like, in both cases, you pray. But in the first case, you pray for repentance. In the second case, you pray that the Holy Spirit will lift your heart, that yeah. when you aren't guilty, that the Holy Spirit would drive away yeah. the false guilt. I don't, I don't know whether this is a full-on named demon, but will drive away the temptation mm -hmm. to self-criticism, Yeah, drive that away. Because mm -hmm. there is something oddly comforting about being able to beat yourself up over something. Mm. Because it's still you're holding on to the control. Like, I'll be the judge. Thank you very much. Right. I hate myself. Right. Rather than handing it over. Yeah. Right. Hand it over. Like, lift mm -hmm. this sense of guilt if it's not real. And then go talk to somebody. Like, go talk to, I don't know, Pastor Jonathan. Yeah, come on. So if, if you're confident that you're not guilty. And, but the hardest case, of course, is the third one. You don't know. Yeah. You can't tell. As far as you can tell, you're treating your mother the way you would want your children to treat you. Maybe you didn't meet them yourself, but you contacted your siblings and says, so what are we going to do? Yes. Um, like it, it wasn't that it, it wasn't always you, but, but you can't tell because you still feel guilty. Yeah. In addition to praying for discernment, which we're mm -hmm. supposed to pray for, mm -hmm. then it's definitely time to talk to somebody else. Yeah. And say, um, I don't know whether this guilt is based in sin or this guilt is based in anxiety. Yeah. Let me describe. And then they'll they'll give you their opinion. Yeah. And probably if you ask you know, if you ask a pagan, that's not going to be helpful. Ask another <laughs> member of your church. It doesn't even have to be somebody that you know very well. Yeah. This might be how you get to know them is to say, I'm struggling with whether or not I should feel guilty about this. This this turns out to be true for all of these should I feel guilty is not just about the way I'm treating my parents. Here's one that I hear often. Should I feel guilty that I'm not giving my 15 year old their own cell phone? <laughs> because they're miserable. They insist that it deprives them of something absolutely fundamental to life in the world. They're mocked by their friends and I'm feeling guilty. Is this guilt from the Holy Spirit or is this guilt from 
my anxiety about being liked by my child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like short answer is that's just anxiety from, it's not from the spirit. No. <laughs> when I talk to high schoolers, I ask them like, how many of you don't have a cell phone of your own? And for all the kids that raise their hand, I say, I know your parents love you. The rest of you, your parents may love you, but I've just got all the proof I need right sure. there. <laughs> right. That is sufficient evidence to know that your parents actually love you and are more worried about your good than being their pal. <laughs> if you're 15, if you're 18 and you're driving, probably you need a way to call for help. But yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not going to be popular by the way. Right. No, that's <laughs> definitely interesting territory. I'm going to read this question. What's the best way to talk about heaven with someone who questions whether their loved one will recognize them and be part of a family unit in heaven? This is a real example, and the person sure. understands there won't be marriage in heaven, but right. is struggling with knowing her family members live together or will be the type of family set up here on earth. It's the right. mental image we all have of what heaven will be like. Right. This is the parent who is anxious that heaven will be disappointing <laughs> because they can't imagine being happy in a place where the family's not together. Right. You've got to have an awfully good family for heaven to be unimaginable without them. It is. Yeah. So the great. first thing to say is rejoice. The family situation that this person is experiencing is a great blessing. So that'd be the first thing to say. And if you are a member of that family, if you're a child in that family, then rejoice. Yeah. And the, the first thing to say is let's, let's pretend it's mom. If mom can't imagine heaven without the family being together, mm. the first thing to say is it means so much to us that you enjoy our company. Yeah one. Now is not the time to teach theology. Like children <laughs> teaching their parents theology all by itself is tricky. Yeah. yeah. As well, you would know better than anybody, Jonathan. Mm. <laughs> uh, because you probably do not set out to teach your dad anything. Exactly. Good move. Other way around. Right. So part of it is the way the relationship works is unless your parents come to you and say, you're theologically trained. We are perplexed by this thing. What does your training tell you? Mm. And I would imagine that's happened to you, yeah. that probably both of your parents have said, what did you read on this topic in your seminary training or in the work that you're doing now for your doctoral degree? I can imagine your parents just like, it's not just idle curiosity. They really want to know yeah. what you know. So if you're invited to give a theological position to your parents, you can do it You've without got the green hesitation. Light, yeah. But yeah. if they're not asking for you to teach them theology, it's, not a... uh, it's probably not going to help the relationship for you to treat them like someone who needs their tutoring. Yep. And so you can grieve that your mom's imagination of heaven has this peace where Jesus just the presence of Jesus would somehow not be enough. We've got Jesus. Yeah. Everything else is going to pale yes, yes. in comparison, yes. it, but it's, it's not going to be enough. to the obliteration of everything good. Yes. Even right. if there's no giving in marriage, so people aren't going to get married right. in heaven. But the data that we have on what heaven is like is 
extremely thin on details, <laughs> yeah, but on purpose, overflowing with beauty. Yes. So insofar as the biblical authors can try to give us a sense of what that will be like, it's just abundance. It's, you know, jewels covering yeah. uh, common objects and yeah. uh, they don't need a sun because the lamb is the light of right. the city of God. It's yeah. just a picture of you will be blown away. Yes. And you will have everything you need. You will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> and I think we can say we don't know. Yeah. We don't know what heaven will be like. So if she's, if your mom wants you to say, um, I know from scripture that our family will all be together and happy in heaven. If she wants you to say that, maybe you don't say exactly that. You right. just say, I am look so looking forward to heaven. Everything I need will be there. I know that we will be perfectly satisfied. Yeah. And if she, if she thinks that that means that the family will all be together, one, we don't know. The family of God will all be together. I think we're at some point, we're supposed to think that, that you are my brother in a way, at least maybe more important than my biological brother. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. Um, but I think the family will be there. So everything that you cherish about your earthly family will be there and more. More, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think you set out to correct her theologizing. So th that's the question. Should she be looking forward to heaven? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go with that. Yeah. Lean into that. Um, okay. In situations where we cannot provide what our parents really long for mm. or are asking for in terms of end-of-life care, for example, it is genuinely not financially or practically viable, how mm. do we lovingly communicate that with them and lay out a more viable option that mm. still makes them feel valued and respected? Uh, let me quickly do the hospital case. Okay. Okay. So the hospital case, there will be a high degree of similarity between what the doctors think is medically indicated and what can be afforded. They'll be closely related Yeah, <laughs> because somebody at the hospital is worrying about reimbursement rates. And it isn't that the doctors are ever discontinuing care because they don't think somebody can pay. That's not happening. Uh, but they are when medicine's not doing much, the doctors are quick to say, this is not accomplishing anything. Yeah. Let's get clear about what it is accomplishing. It's going to keep them alive for six weeks unconscious. Yeah. Is that the way the patient would want to spend the money? Right. And like we could, but that's probably not what they wanted. So I think it's going to be fairly rare that what the parents want would have wanted in the hospital and you can't afford is going to be uh, highly similar to what the doctors are recommending. Right. Anyway, much harder and more common is what mom and dad want, or let's just go with mom. Uh, what mom wants is Cadillac assisted living facility. <laughs> and your parents didn't provide for that being paid for. And you lack the resources mm -hmm. to pay for it for your parents. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying you're bankrupt. I'm saying that along with providing for the other people you're responsible for, you can't also 
pay for the Cadillac assisted living facility. And they're disappointed. Yeah. And they tell you, this place is a dump. Right. And you say, this is what we can afford. And they say, I know what you've got in your retirement account. Uh, if you drain that, you can pay for the nice place where I want to live. And then their wishes turn out to be advice that you have to take seriously. Yeah. But not a command that you have to obey. Hmm. And you do your best. You don't say, look, look, mom, this is what you're worth. Right. You know, yeah. You're only worth this place that smell like smells like urine all the time. Uh, you don't say <laughs> that. You me no package. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can say, I'm so sorry that we, we, because it's not just you. It's all the choices that your parents made about providing for their own retirement and that part. We're supposed to be like you, you, Jonathan, right now, even at your not terribly oldness, I happen to know, um, are make are taking steps. You've got a retirement account. You're making provision so that you will not be nothing but a financial drain on your children. Yeah. yeah. There are people who don't do that. Yeah. And then what the children can truthfully say is that I am sorry that we can't afford more than this. And that's just true. You lament you're not repenting. You're, you lament that the choices that were made in the past make this the best that can be. This is the, the nicest facility that we can get. Yeah. I would keep you at home, but that's not safe. It's not safe physically. It might not be safe emotionally. Yeah. Um, I would. This is, in fact, I've looked. This is the nicest place that we can afford. Yeah. And that will be disappointing to your parents because they, they may have either never thought hard about what the money meant, or they may not be able to think clearly enough to recognize that this is in fact what the money will allow. And now we're back to, should I feel guilty? Right. <laughs> well, right. In this case, I just described, yeah. you are not guilty of no. dishonoring them. No. You have done the best with what was available. Yeah. You're still going to feel terrible. Sure. Um, because you love your parents and because you don't want them disappointed and you spent a lot of your life making sure they were proud of you, not disappointed with you, mm. it's going to be difficult when it's just true that this is the best that we can afford. Mm. And so, and you don't punish your mom for being disappointed, but you pray that the Holy Spirit will send comfort to her, you know, enough clarity, even briefly to see this is in fact where the whole history of life choices have led us, this is what we're looking at. Yeah. And then you pray that they have clarity, but you don't punish them for being frustrated. You pray that the Holy Spirit will lift inappropriate guilt and provide you with people to talk to that you can share without dishonoring your parents by the way you describe what's happening. That mm. you're always protecting their reputation. Yeah. Not with lies, but you don't publish, you don't tell other people the unseemly parts. It's like mocking Noah when he's drunk. Right. You go out of your way to cover over their failings. Yeah. What are the most common regrets you hear people have as they look back on their experience caring for aging parents? The most common regret is that they didn't talk about the logistics and 
what they would have wanted before they couldn't Mm. answer the questions anymore. Yeah. That's the runaway winner. If only we'd talked about it, I wouldn't have to guess. Yeah. It's like making choices in the hospital. You need to look for opportunities that are fairly casual, like watch a movie that involves caring for someone with dementia with your right now perfectly healthy parents. Yeah. (laughs) And talk about what they would want if they were uh, some cognitive impairment comes on all of a sudden. Yes. Like of of frontotemporal disorders. You can go from uh, being a partner in a law firm to acting bizarrely in three months. And the older you are, the faster you degenerate. Right. So you shouldn't say, I know right now because I'm 63 years old. That's me. Um, I know that I've got plenty of time. You just, you don't. You don't know. There are conditions that come very, very quickly. There are others where you get warnings. And then when you get evidence, you talk to your doctor about whether you need to get tested. Right. Um, And if you're like me, you would rather not know than hear bad news. That's definitely me. (laughs) And that's why you tell your wife about it, because she would rather know than get bad news. Yeah. (laughs) And then she'll you'll keep after you until you see the doctor. <laughs> That's one thing my wife is very good at is making sure I follow through when I have moments of lucidity. <laughs> what blessings are we missing out on if we see this as more of a chore and a burden rather than a privilege? What biblical viewpoints can help reframe our perspectives? So what the Bible says about your parents words is that they are sources of wisdom and that because two things we know are true they've lived more life than you have yeah necessarily and they love you now sometimes that love is expressed in all kinds of bizarre ways but they probably care for you more than they care for anyone else in the world Mm. and so Between the experience they have and their love for you, the words, even when you don't want to hear it, the words that they have for you are, the Bible tells us, a blessing. Mm. And it doesn't say you have to obey them, but it does say that the words are going to lead you away from temptation. Mm. Uh, Your parents, for the most part, are going to give you a, a reasonable estimate about what's possible. And so it might sound like discouraging words. Because you've got a dream and they're leading you in another direction. And it's probably because they know you well enough to know that that dream can't be realized without hurting people or yourself because it's not possible. So I think not listening to your parents, not seeking out and hearing from your parents, even when let's suppose you're involved in a software development and your parents don't know anything about software development. So it's not like they can give you tips on how to be better at your job. Right. But they know a lot about people Mm. and they know how you've related to people. Uh, It turns out that your basic social skills don't change dramatically from the time you're six years old. How old's your son? Six. Six. Um, (laughs) He's going to be like that with people. Yeah. He'll work at parts of it and he'll become better at covering for his reluctance to say hi to people he doesn't know. That's not his problem. (laughs) 
No, that's not his problem. That's good. <laughs> it's yeah, the so my, my youngest had a hugging ministry when he was six. He would just, <laughs> I think we've got that too. Yeah, he would just he would find, especially older people, he would just find them and say, can I hug you? And then he would hug them. That's so sweet. <laughs> and, I love that. And they loved it. Yeah. Because, um, yeah. yeah. But your parents know you. Yeah. And they know what you're going to find easier and mm. harder. Mm. And so just telling them about your life, they're going to notice things that you didn't notice. Mm. Um, I know because I have a son who's a, a computer programmer and I don't know what he does um, <laughs> much, but he'll talk about work and um, his mom and I will notice things about his relationships with people, which we do understand. Yeah. And we'll say, is that significant? Or how did you follow up on that? And mm. every once in a while we ask a question that's helpful. Yeah because we know him and we love him yeah. and we've got life experience. So I think if you are absenting yourself, this turns out to be true certainly with your parents, but it's also true with old people generally mm. spending time talking to older people will be good. Yeah. You will, you'll understand the world better. Yes. You will be more sensitive to the, what people find delightful and what people find lamentable. Yeah listening to them and you'll understand how to pray for everyone better after you've talked to some older people mm. because they've got insight into how the world works. Yeah. So well, I think that's and, and the church is a great place for those conversations, I would yeah. say. Right. Just at, after church, just find somebody older than you that you don't know and just introduce yourself. And say, I think that's a deficiency we have kind of at the moment. We, we Yeah, well, we get out of there as quickly as we can because we've got plans. <laughs> or if you, know, you have kids and you oven. just need to get out, you know. But, but I think you're right. I think that's an element that we lack. And I think we see some of the outflow of, of that with a lot of the generational yeah. animosity that we see today. And it's because we're don't not talk to each other. Yeah, we don't talk to each other and we don't know how to talk to each other. That's a different podcast. What are the biggest struggles people face at the end of their lives, and how can we minister to those struggles? The most common struggle, and it doesn't start way at the end of their life, is everyone after retirement struggles with feeling useless. Mm. And this is a problem that is a bigger struggle before you become cognitively impaired. <laughs> Once you yes. start recognizing that you're having trouble with memory um, or you're not recognizing people or maybe you're not safe or you can't cook for yourself anymore safely. Once you reach that point, there is a worry that uh, you're still able to worry that you're a burden to other mm. people. But And that's the most common struggle if you're dealing with dementia of some kind is that you are a burden to other people. And the way you minister to them is through the people who are caring for them is you care for them, and we'll talk about that later, that you care for the caregivers, but then uh, you encourage them with, this is for us a privilege. You feel like you're holding us back, but this is the most important thing we could be doing with our mm. time mm. is loving you. Yeah. So that's something you say to somebody who can still understand. But for the people who are feeling useless, anybody who's able to pray is not useless. Mm. So one of the things my church has done is with people who are shut in on Tuesday, a pastor and I took communion to a woman who lives in an assisted living facility. Mm. She's not 
healthy enough to leave the facility. Yeah. But we went to be with her. Yeah. And we don't do a lightning round communion visitation. We were there for an hour. Yeah. And we sing hymns and have a little message. And because, you know, we don't separate word and sacrament. We yeah. do understand that part too. Yeah. But we also got to talk to her about who she was praying for. Mm. So, and telling her about prayer needs in the church. Oh. And asking, and, and this is one of the ways that she contributes to the life of the church yeah. is she is aware of one of the things is uh, parents who are caring for special needs children. Mm. So she prays for those parents that they would be loving and that they would have endurance, mm. that they would see slight improvements or that they would be able to rejoice over uh, gains that their special need child made or just the things that the child takes delight in, that they would be able to take delight in those things as well. So we have older people who are cognitively fine, but physically not doing well, mm. but they're strong enough to pray mm. and they're warriors. I think that Satan would much rather deal with me than with an old person who's spending two hours a day in prayer. I think the person who's spending two hours a day in prayer is doing more for the advance of Christ's kingdom than I do with eight hours of writing a book right. in a day. <laughs> the um, opposite that, of uselessness for right, that, for that person. Yeah. yeah. And I think because we underplay the role of the power of prayer in our life, as long as we're able to get paid to do things. Mm -hmm. So we think that what really matters is what we're paid to do. Yeah. And because we're not paid to pray, that must not matter. That's just an American error. <laughs> I think we need to reinforce, especially for people who are moving into retirement, there's still a lot for you to do. One is to mentor young people, just be someone who has, who goes to lunch, you know, the people, pe young people with jobs still have to eat. And so you go to lunch with them mm. uh, twice a month. You're an old, you know, you're retired. Yeah. We have retired people who go and sit at the courthouse uh, in the divorce court if they see anybody come, because in the state of Tennessee, there has to be two court appearances in order for a divorce to happen. Yeah. The first one is, is the intent. And then uh, at least 31 days have to elapse before there can be the, the final decree of divorce. Mm -hmm. And they go and if they see somebody they know from church doing the first step, they grab them on the way out and say, we've got 31 days to restore this marriage. Wow. <laughs> That's their job wow. is to go. And if they see somebody they know, uh, whether in the church or not, who is there because they've been arrested for drunk driving, <laughs> they wow. will grab them on the way out and say, we would like to be your friends. Mm. Like, is there some way we can help you? Mm. We know that you just had your license taken away from you. Can we drive you? Right. So they're useful. They're not getting paid to do it. Yeah. Uh, but they're super useful. So you can always pray. But there's other things that you know from either being a mentor or just being there to be a friend to someone in need because you go to the courthouse <laughs> and watch it happen. It doesn't take very many people like that telling their stories for other people to say, hey, there's a thing I can do. But uselessness is the biggest spiritual challenge that older people face mm. because we live in a culture that says, if you're too old to work, you are nothing but a drag. You don't know how to use a cell phone. You don't know the latest music. Right. You're not with it. You're just a problem. Mm. So rather than listening to talk radio all day and getting angry, <laughs> 
<laughs> because that Stepping will only on make you feel less important. Mm, You'll yeah. just feel impotent. You'll yeah. say, culture's falling apart. I can't do anything about it. Um, I'll write angry letters. I'll send money to these angry people online. <laughs> I'm going to try to make a difference. No, you can do way more good for society. Never mind the gospel, but including the gospel, you can do way more good for society. Just spending that time being a friend to a younger person in your line of work, you know, who could benefit from your years of experience and whatever it was you got paid to do. Mm. You'll do more good for the country yeah, by giving them someone to talk to that where they can benefit from all you learned the hard way. Mm. So, I don't know if that's helpful, but there's... You've started about five different ministries in the in the time <laughs> of our interview. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go sit down with people now and <laughs> get some of these started. Dr. Davis, we're always so grateful for you giving of your time and talking with us. The questions that you're asking are really difficult, yeah. and people should not feel bad no. about being perplexed and asking questions. So thank you for the time. Thank you. If you have questions for Dr. Davis on this topic, please email us at candid at ltw.org. That's candid at ltw.org. And we may answer them in a future episode. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It does help people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.